Heavenly Father, thank you for these accurate historical documents which record the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus. Uh, as we reflect on them today, and in particular this encounter of this legal expert with Jesus, we pray that that encounter and the truths of what it brings to our, our lives uh, would be clear to us and that we would yeah, be blessed by you speaking to us afresh through your word today. Amen. Uh, have you ever seen somebody who is top in their field in action? Maybe someone who has, uh, over the time, refined their skills to the point where it's just a pleasure to observe them. And maybe you've seen the film uh, Gifted Hands. It's the true story of Dr. Ben Carson. Uh, the opening scene is set in present-day Germany in 1987. A couple who have conjoined twins plead with him to take their case. Now, it's a tricky one. Uh, the chance of both twins surviving the separation are very, very slim indeed. So, uh, Dr. Carson advises them that uh, over the next four months, he will see if he can devise a method for the operation so that both twins will live. So, he returns to America and he starts researching all the available options for the operation. Uh, the film then flashes back to his early childhood. Uh, he starts out life as a frustrated African-American child. Uh, he's from a one-parent family uh, with failing school grades, and his prospects seem very dismal indeed. His mother, uh, she suffers from depression and yet she still has the wherewithal to recognize the negative effects of TV on her son's mental development. So what does she do? Uh, she forbids him and his brother from watching TV, and instead she insists that they read two books a week from the local library, even though she herself is illiterate. Now this sparks a hunger in the young Ben Carson for reading and knowledge, and it's the turning point in his education and his life. And thereafter, his grades improve markedly. Eventually, he gets a scholarship for college and later medical school. And once qualified, he courageously takes on some very high-risk operations. He hones his skills and his abilities and becomes an expert in his field. He becomes a world-renowned pediatrician, uh, pediatric neurosurgeon at the John Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore. Uh, the film then goes back to where it began in 1987. Ben eventually devises a plan for the operation. He rehearses it repeatedly with his team until they can complete the various tasks within the very short time frames available. And on the day, all of Ben's research and his knowledge, combined with his credible skill of his nimble surgeon's hands, enable the operation to be completed successfully. Now, for those of you who are thinking of seeing the film, I'm sorry if I've uh, given too much away. Uh, it is a great film. It's well worth seeing. It is stirring viewing. It was so invigorating to see this specialist doctor at work, bringing all of his experience 
and his skill to bear on this situation. A man at the top of his game, the top of his field, making the difference between life and death for the twins. What do you think it would have been like to have been around when Jesus was conducting his three-year ministry on earth in 30 AD? What do you think it would have been like to have seen this master at work in his field of expertise? Would it not have been truly staggering? A man, if you like, at the top of his game, not to be irreverent, but a man who has had such skill, such wisdom, such knowledge, which he applied in amazing ways in whatever situation he was faced. Uh, at his baptism, of course, the Spirit of God had descended on him, and he was now empowered for ministering God's wisdom and God's grace. And that is what he did. Uh, whomever he met, the Spirit enabled him to discern that person's heart. And Jesus was able to speak words of divine wisdom and grace into those people's lives. And those words were sharper than a surgeon's scalpel. Those words of Jesus divided soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Those words of Jesus judged the thoughts and the attitudes of people's hearts. Jesus could see what was going on in their hearts, and he knew just what to prescribe in each case. He knew just what each person needed. Uh, to the arrogance and the self-confidence, Jesus spoke stern words of rebuke. To the downtrodden who were caught in sin, Jesus spoke words which were both gentle but also challenging. He offered them hope without condoning their sin. A smoldering wick he did not smother. Jesus was like a doctor who was the top of his field. And indeed, don't you think, it would have been an absolute pleasure to watch him in action. Of course, Jesus likened himself to a doctor. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 17, uh, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus, of course, could heal bodies miraculously. But Jesus could also heal souls. He has been called uh, the great physician, the master doctor, and that is what he is, the master divine doctor. Uh, we're starting a series today which draws upon this theme of Jesus as the divine master doctor. And over the coming weeks, we'll be looking in the Gospels at some of the people whom Jesus encountered uh, they were different types of people from all manners of backgrounds, and they had different problems and different issues. And yet, for each of them, Jesus was able to speak words of grace and wisdom into their lives. He was able to address their deepest needs. He was able to heal the brokenness caused by sin, and he was able to start restoring people to all that God intended for them, even the most conflicted and the most hopeless wretches. Yet our interest in this series is not going to be purely 
academic. For Jesus' words of wisdom and grace, which he spoke then, also speak to our hearts today. Because the truth is, of course, the maladies, the illness of our hearts, they've not changed over time. And therefore, Jesus will speak to matters that you and I and those around us all still struggle with today. Now today, uh, we're going to meet the first person off the rank. It is the expert in the religious law of Israel. It's this man who comes to Jesus with a question. Verse 25 of Luke 10. Uh, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we're given a a couple of clues into the state of this man's heart. Uh, We're told here that the motive for his question was to test Jesus. Uh, Later in the account, we're also informed that he wanted to justify himself. You see, it's probably likely his question is not genuine. He is not earnest in the asking. Uh, I guess he's probably like one of those uh, verbose, self-promoting people we've all encountered on courses, those people who like the sound of their own voices, and they just can't resist asking questions. I think this man's probably got a bit of a pride problem. Uh, He's quite full of himself. He's quite self-confident. He's a bit of a wise guy. Uh, A bit of a background on uh, this man's profession. He is described as an expert in the law. This, of course, is uh, the religious law. Uh, Experts in the religious law, their job was to interpret and apply the religious law of Israel to people's everyday life situations. So he's a legal expert in the law, law of God. Now then, as any lawyer can tell you, the road to becoming a qualified legal expert, it's a long road, and it's costly, and it requires many years of hard graft and diligent study. Yet, this guy who came to Jesus, he's done that. He's been down that road. He's made it. And he's now a respected member of this elite profession. And he's acknowledged as an expert in his field. He was an esteemed Bible scholar and theologian. And no doubt, he was proud of it. Now, it's not hard to imagine the sense of indignation he may have felt as he heard the reports of Jesus's teaching. He hears the reports. People are amazed at the teaching of Jesus. People are flabbergasted by his wisdom and his authority with which he teaches. And of course, he would have heard the reports that religious authorities were not coming out of their encounters with Jesus very well. And maybe some of his colleagues had been bruised in their exchanges with Jesus. And you can imagine what would be going on in the heart of this legal expert? This Jesus, who is this upstart? He comes from the slum of Nazareth. He's had no formal education. Who does he think he is? And so he goes to Jesus with a question to test him. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this legal expert, uh, he may may well be a wise guy, but Jesus is wiser. 
Jesus knows that the safest way to answer a question is with a question. Verse 26, uh, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Well, unexpectedly, the ball is already back in the court of the legal expert. But he's unfazed, and he used, uh, he's used to answering such questions. After all, that is his job. And his lucid legal mind immediately goes back to God's Old Testament law, in particular, Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, which we had read to us. And of course, there, there is this pithy summary of the whole intent of God's law. And quicker, quicker as a flash, he responds, verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now the discussion comes to an unexpectedly quick conclusion. Verse 28. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Well, this is not what he expected. Uh, this is not the hyperfluting, impressive public debate that he had been relishing. That's it. He's not a happy chappy. Verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? He wants to justify himself. He wants everyone to know that he qualifies for eternal life. Uh, it would seem that he assumes he does live out a life of love. Uh, he may well have been a caring and compassionate character. We're not told. But he wants to know now, where does the boundary lie? Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love to qualify for eternal life? Uh, people in my family, people on the street, people in the synagogue, uh, people who are my fellow nationals. So Jesus tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, of course, it's one of the most famous of Jesus' parables. Uh, we're all familiar with it. This poor traveler who is in the wrong place at the wrong time, uh, he falls victim to violent thugs. They steal all he has and they leave him for dead. Now, as the crowd and the legal expert listen to that first telling, they maybe would have experienced mild surprise that neither the priest nor the Levite in the story offered help. Uh, these were, of course, important, upstanding religious figures in the community. But they probably had a sense as to where the story was heading. Uh, it was that old, tried and trusted three-part story formula. It would climax, of course, with the common, everyday, hard-working Jew as the hero against the established pillars of society. But nobody expected what they heard next verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. A Samaritan? A Samaritan? The word chokes in the throat of everyone standing there. Samaritans, of course, were regarded with deep contempt by Jews. Samaritans were the untouchables. Uh, religiously, they were renegades. They were half-breeds. They were half-Jew and half-non-Jew. Over the prior centuries, they had intermarried with non-Jewish peoples. They had polluted their Jewish heritage. In the eyes of pure Jews, 
Samaritans had betrayed all their principles and they had trampled their privileged status as God's people in the dirt. And hence we have this deep-seated, centuries-old hatred and animosity, animosity between Jews and Samaritans. And they wanted nothing to do with each other. Why, oh why, had Jesus introduced a Samaritan? The lawyer was no longer sure where this story was heading. And maybe a ripple of muttering radiated out through the Jewish crowd listening to Jesus. Well, this poor traveller, he's got Buckley's chance of any help from the Samaritan. He's probably going to take the opportunity to put the boot in. But Jesus continues unabashed. Verse 33. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. How do you think that listening Jewish crowd and this Jewish legal expert felt? They were dumbfounded. And the details of the story were embarrassing. Not only did this Samaritan care for this Jew, but he went to great lengths to care for him. It cost him a great deal of time. It was greatly inconvenient, and it cost him cold, hard cash. An avowed enemy of the Jews, acting with such mercy, such love, such compassion towards a Jew. This wasn't so much a parable as surreal fiction to those who heard it in that day. And Jesus then looked the lawyer in the eye. And he said, verse 36, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The lawyer. He realized the tables had been turned. The tester had become the tested. It was not him putting Jesus in the dock. Jesus had put him in the dock. And so uncomfortable was he at the conclusion of the story that he couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Verse 37, the expert in the, in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Here's the question. Where are the boundaries drawn for God's law of love? Do you see what Jesus is saying? God's law of love has no boundaries. It's not just family and friends. And it's not just more distant people to whom we may feel ambivalent towards, neutral. It even envelops those who we disdain 
and we dislike. And those even who dislike us. Can any of us do this? Can any of us go and do likewise? The answer is very short. No. And no doubt the legal experts slunk away deflated and humiliated because his love had boundaries. And if we're honest, so does ours. And the more we look into the true standard of God's law of love, the more we realize how high the bar is. You see, to love people doesn't just mean that we do them no harm. It's not just neutral. To love people means we also do them good. Now then, the priest and the Levite, they didn't harm the battered traveler, but they didn't do the good they should have done. You see, their failure was not the sin of commission, something they did, but the sin of omission, something they didn't do. They didn't love as they should have loved. Jesus' story humbles us all. Jesus' story reminds us that the prize of eternal life is way, way, way out of reach of each and every one of us if it comes down to our efforts to live out God's law of love. You see where Jesus' story points us? It points each of us, each of, us of course, to the cross. Because it's only at the cross of Jesus that our failures to live out God's law of love can be forgiven, can be wiped clean. And it's only through Christ's forgiveness that he gives us as a gift, not as something that we earn, that we then have the gift of eternal life. And then, to those who have said to Jesus, please forgive me, what does Jesus say? He says this, go and do likewise. We can't earn eternal life, and we don't go and do likewise to earn eternal life. It's a gift of God. But we go and do likewise because we are deeply grateful to our Heavenly Father and to Jesus for the forgiveness He has given us for all our failings. So, for those of us who are trusting in Jesus today, Jesus' story would point us in a surprising direction. Jesus' story would point us to the Bee Gees. It would. It would. Jesus' story points us to the Bee Gees. For those who are trusting in Christ, Jesus' story would point us to the Bee Gees in the words of their 1977 hit, How deep is your love? Yeah. That is where the story points us. How deep is your love? Will we actively love all people without boundaries? Will we love when it's inconvenient? Will we love when it's costly? Will we love when it's uncomfortable? Will we actively love and seek the good of people who hurt us or who hurt those close to us? There is no way 
that we can live out that kind of love in our own strength. And you see where it drives us, not just to the cross, but also to our knees. Because then, as people forgiven in Christ, we cry out, Holy Spirit, fall afresh on me. Empower me, change me, melt me, mold me with that sort of love which only you can give. And we pray that to God's glory to go and do likewise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we look at the standard of this law of love which you call us to live out in your world, we cannot do it. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross, the means by which we can be forgiven all our failings when all we do is say, please, Jesus, forgive me. Thank you for that priceless gift of eternal life which then becomes ours. But you then give us a daunting commission to go and do likewise as forgiven children in your family to live out a love without boundaries. Father, we can't do that on our own strength. Please pour your Spirit out afresh upon us. Melters, molders, changes, breakers. Give us that love increasingly which knows no boundaries and help us to live it out not just with those who are kind to us, but also those who are unkind to us. And we pray we'd live this way to your glory. Amen.